Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are things in Toronto? Hey, thanks for having me. Things are good in Toronto. John, you and your team have been very busy developing new products for investors to capitalize on the energy transition theme. And I want to discuss these new products. But before we do that, let's spend a few minutes on uranium, seeing how this is a uranium conference. And why don't we just start with an update on the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust or SPUT. When you and your team took it over in July of 2021, it's hard to believe that was a year and a half ago, but the NEB was 600 million and it held approximately 18 million pounds of uranium. Where does it stand now? Yeah, so uh, it's been a, a very busy start to 2023 and I'm, I'm very, uh, and my team are very happy with that because last year obviously was a bit of a challenging year, but the trust right now uh, just recently crossed the 60 million pound mark. So we continue to uh, take investor interest uh, when we're trading at a premium to NAV and we've been stacking more material and the, and the stockpile continues to grow slowly. So um, yeah, we definitely think that 2023 has, has ushered in, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a new year, new hope, new expectations that the sector is gonna continue to uh, move along. It's what we believe is it's, it's bull market. And the fundamentals, um, if you talk to many, you know, industry, long-time industry uh, participants, um, many of them will say to you that we've not seen the, the fundamentals as good as this in, in their 40-year career. So, you know, we're relatively new in the segment, but when you hear people that have been in the segment for 30 or 40 years talk about what's going on around them, you know, from a, from a fundamental perspective, from an energy policy perspective, from some of the geopolitical risk perspective um i think it's a very interesting time to be to be investing in uranium so once again just to summarize you went from 18 million pounds to over 60 million pounds that's a lot of uranium yeah it is a, it is a lot of uranium but i think uh, to put it into context we're seeing a big pickup in demand for uranium globally um, last year one of the uh, industry consultants published uh, that 114 million pounds in 2022 were sold to utilities uh, under long-term contracts. We think that number is understated. We, we think the real number is substantially higher than that. And, and the reason we say that is because Cameco alone has told us that they've done about 80 million pounds uh, through long-term contracts last year alone. So I, I, we think that uh, the industry clearly has done more than 34 million in total. So if you, if you think about all the off-market off transactions that are also happening, we think that number is, is substantially higher than the 114. Why that is important? Well, we think it's a really key signal. Uh, first of all, it's the highest amount that utilities have procured in the last 10 years. More importantly, it's a clear signal that utilities are feeling much better about their operations and that they're finally coming back to reload their inventories. You know, we know the spot market is the smaller of the two markets. The term market is really where the, the bulk of the contracting happens. And utilities coming back to the to the contract market, the long-term contract market, buying larger quantities in, with larger durations, with, uh, you know, market-based prices. I think all, those are all very healthy signs and signals that the health of the industry is recovering. We think this is a, a key part of the thesis that the industry needs to recover from, from a multi-year bear market, and that we're still in the early stages of, of this recovery. 
As you mentioned, the SPOT product has been relatively busy here in the last few weeks, and SPOT uranium is up 8% of the year, give or take. And I want to get a better sense of what's happening in the SPOT market. And is there still pounds available, or is the market very tight? If Would you be able to acquire a million or two million pounds if you had to? Well, we've acquired about two million pounds this year. So I think it's fair to say that there has been material available to us. It clearly ebbs and flows. Some days you don't find a lot. Other days, you know, people are willing to offer uh, you material. I think there is some seasonality in terms of, you know, you start the new year. We saw this last year as well. Um, and, you know, there tends to be a little bit more mobile inventory towards the beginning of the year. So we have been able to procure. As you said, the price is up about 8%. We're at, we've gone from about $48 a pound on January 1st to uh, just shy of $52 today. So, you know, that's that's obviously a good start to the year. Now, what's driving that, obviously, is a lot of utility demand in the background. You know, it's hard for us to kind of piece it all together because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these transactions are done off-market, meaning they're not reported to the marketplace. These contracts, we believe, are pretty sizable and they're, and they're growing in number as utilities think very differently about their long-term needs as reactors are getting life extensions, reactors are coming back online, for example, in Japan, new reactors are being built around the world and, and I'm not even talking about you know the next generation of reactors which are still several years away. Now you layer on that the uncertainty around potential sanctions or retaliatory sanctions that you know as we're coming up to the one year anniversary of, of the invasion of Ukraine is still making utilities nervous. Um, there are numerous bills floating around proposing different actions to sanction uh, Russian uranium as well as Russian um, enrichment and conversion services. These bills, you know, they're being talked about, but at this point, uh, they don't seem to be imminent. Um, and I think the reason why they haven't been implemented thus far, um, uh, in, in contrast to many other commodities and services that have been sanctioned, is that clearly the utilities went to their respective governments and said, look, we've signed these agreements with the Russians. Uh, if, we, if we don't continue to take delivery, uh, we could be at risk in terms of, of, of securing enough conversion and enrichment to keep our plants running. And that obviously caused governments to take a pause and, and reflect on the reality that we've offshored a lot of this supply chain to Russia over the, over the last few decades. And that in order to reshore this supply chain, it will take anywhere from kind of two to probably six years. The additional capacity that the Western countries need uh, can be built, but it will only be built uh, if there's long-term contracts awarded to them at obviously, you know, economic crisis to make the capital investments necessary to, to basically scale up these operations in France and Canada and, uh, and the United States. So we think ultimately there will be some form of sanctions. We think it will be a transition period. Um, it doesn't mean that utilities aren't thinking about the potential risks. Uh, whether it's, you know, logistical risks, insurance risks of, of ship, you know, shipping material. Uh, I think I think all of these geopolitical factors have clearly acted as a catalyst to make utilities think uh, very differently about the potential disruptions of risks to, uh, to their supply of uranium and, and different services. You raised some very good points, uh, especially from a geopolitical point of view. And, and the U.S. is beholden to, to Russia right now for uranium and its various services that it offers. 
And I guess there's really not much you can do because these are long-term effects, right? You just can't wake up one day and say, okay, I'm no longer going to deal with Russia because you have no place else to go to get the pounds. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, you know, there's a very uh, interesting report that was uh, published by the White House in uh, June of 2021 that basically lays out the blueprint for reshoring a number of critical industries. Those involve things like pharmaceuticals, computer chips, critical minerals, uh, critical minerals for batteries. Um, so the US government has clearly acknowledged that they can no longer rely on certain nations for these supply chains. These are uh, key elements and minerals related to energy security as well as natural, national security. And you're starting to see this bifurcation happen this deglobalization, as some people are calling it, and this basically reshoring or reindustrialization that's happening. The what we find really interesting across this broader thematic is that the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, is now starting to make strategic investments in specific companies to ensure this reshoring pro uh, process takes root. So, for example, we've we've recently seen the Department of Energy make several loans to companies in the lithium space or in the battery materials sector. This is really important to take notice of for investors. When the government starts making equity investments or, or uh, loan, make, extend loans or, or backstop loans to different pu uh, public companies, it tells you what they're concerned about. They're clearly concerned about uh, not having places like China or Russia control important supply chains. Uh, rare earths is obviously another topic that people are concerned about. Battery uh, manufacturing for EVs is obviously something that today is dominated by China and, and, and governments in the UK, the EU, Canada, and, and um, the United States are clearly focused on encouraging and incentivizing local primary production of these materials, the processing, because many of these minerals have to be turned into chemical form, so you need key uh, processing uh, capacity. And then obviously the last step is manufacturing of the end product and putting it inside of a finished good. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, is clearly focused on this reshoring, the tax incentives related to electric vehicles, renewable energy um, are very clear to us what, what is going on uh, behind, behind, the, you know, behind the, uh, the surface, underneath the surface. So we think uranium is another element that, the, that uh, governments around the world are, are very focused on. The U.S. You know, made its first million pound investment in uranium to, to establish a strategic uranium reserve. You know, in the past, the U.S. government held large quantities of uranium. Um, that obviously has changed over the years. And, and uh, their initial investment, we think, is a, is a good sign that they're thinking about the critical nature of many of these materials. You raise a lot of very interesting points. And as a reminder to our viewers, the U.S. is the largest consumer of uranium. They consume approximately 50 million pounds a year. So, and as you mentioned, they did start a strategic uranium fund, but a million pounds is rather insignificant compared to what their annual needs are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, last year, uh, U.S. Uh, primary production of uranium was, was just under 400,000 pounds. The year before it was 20,000 pounds. So there's, you know, the wheels are slowly turning in terms of, uh, you know, turning primary production uranium back on. 
many companies are, are, are in the process of evaluating whether they can do that and at what price points uh, they need to see as incentives to turn these operations back online. We think it's inevitable there will be more production of uranium in the United States. Um, obviously, in the interim, the United States is relying heavily on, on key countries like Canada and Australia for their, for their uranium needs. Um, so, you know, I think uh, if you look at what's happening in, in some of the uranium states, like Wyoming, for example, historical producer, uh, you know, Senator Brasso there is, is very keen on, on uh, restarting their, their local industry in uranium. So that's a great overview of the spot, the term, and also some geopolitics in there. But why don't we move on now? I'm curious to hear what investors are saying. You speak to institutional investors all over the world. And given the positive backdrop and also the move that we've seen year to date in the uranium price, are you getting a lot more inbounds? Yeah, we saw we saw a noticeable pickup um, just right coming out of the, the start of the new year in terms of investors, institutional investors, uh, reaching out to us, um, either existing investors that had signaled to us uh, that they have been accumulating positions in, in uh, the uranium trust over the fourth quarter, which was great to see. They saw the uh, the value opportunity there when the trust was trading at a discount to NAV. But we've also had some new investors reach out to us saying, hey, this is an interesting uh, thesis to us. We're doing research on it. We'd like to talk to you about it. And uh, obviously, that, that's, that's great, too, seeing some new people come into the sector. I think, in general, um, we've seen a sea change in the level of interest related to uranium and energy transition materials and mining the last couple of years from institutions. Uh, prior to that, I, I don't think there was much interest whatsoever, uh, other than a few pockets of some contrarian investors. But we're starting to see more and more investors interested in this topic. Now, why are they interested in the topic? Because there's big energy policy shifts that are already underway that are going to incentivize uh, significant investment. So as, as, um, as we talked about before we got on, you know, certain, certain uh, OEMs, these are the car makers, for example, starting to make strategic investments down into their supply chains to ensure security of supply. You know, the car makers have pretty lofty goals in terms of transitioning away from internal combustion engine vehicles to EVs. Some, in some countries, is being mandated. You know, the European Union clearly wants to phase out entirely sales of new ICEs in the future. You know, and if we want to do that, if we have any hope of doing that, we're obviously going to have to reinvent all of our supply chains and, and critical minerals and raw materials are, are, are obviously very top of mind for the publicly traded companies, the private companies, as well as the local governments. They want this to happen, and they're, they're providing the right incentives uh, and, and tax credits to, to spur on this local production and manufacturing. The big issue is obviously uh, permitting, regulations, mining is very uh, uh, you know, complicated, and we obviously have to do it sustainably. I will also make another comment that when we talk to investors that are focused on energy transition, there is a heightened level of awareness and focus on ensuring that these supply chains are clean. They do not want to be investing in mining companies that are supporting or enabling the energy transition and finding out that these companies are, are destroying the environment or local communities. So there's a very high standard being placed on these companies focused on these energy transmit, transition materials. And I think 
I think that's very important. It's very important to encourage investment in the sector if people feel it can be done responsibly. So John, we discussed the spot and what's happening there in terms of flows. What is going on with the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF? Sure, well, the uranium stocks had a very challenging year last year. We've, we've talked to a lot of investors that uh, clearly were frustrated. You know, they saw the uranium price end the year with a small single digit percentage gain, and yet the stocks were down 15 or more percent depending on, on the company. This year, we've seen a nice bounce in the uranium stocks. So for example, in the month of January, they were up 15% on average, which is a great, a great bounce. I think people you know, are starting to realize that the commodity price and the related uh, miners are obviously two different animals. The commodity price is different. Uh, the commodity has different fundamentals. Um, the stocks uh, obviously have very uh, company specific things going on within them, but they also tend to have a moderate level of correlation to the just general stock market. And so when you see general stock market sell-offs, it doesn't matter you know, how positive the fundamentals are for the commodity, sometimes the, those related stocks can sell off. And we saw that last year. We're starting to see the uranium stocks outperform the general stock market. I think that's a very healthy sign that interest is coming back into the sector and people are saying, hey, the stocks look kind of cheap here relative to the commodity, which is starting to improve again. You know, I think the stocks look like a better uh, a better opportunity. Now, having said that, we're not seeing massive flows come into our uranium mining sector uh, ETFs. We've, we've had maybe $25 million of net sales. The largest competitor, by the way, is actually down about $30 million for the year. So net-net, it's kind of a wash. So there isn't a huge amount of capital coming into the sector, but the stocks, the stocks have obviously performed pretty well year-to-date so far. So um, starting to see some improve, improvement in relative performance, but we're not seeing the money kind of flood in again. I think people are clearly sitting on the sidelines, not just in uranium stocks, but with many, many different sectors. Uh, people are still nervous about Fed policy. Are we getting close to the end of the tightening cycle? Are they gonna keep raising rates and putting more pressure on equity markets? And until we get a little bit more clarity on, on whether we're getting closer to a pause, I think markets are going to remain volatile and money is going to is going to be you know ebbing flowing in and out. You and your team recently rolled out a new product, the Junior Miners ETF. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about this product and also how it compares to the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF. Yeah, sure. So the the Sprott uh, Junior Uranium Miners ETF uh, launched at the beginning of February, and we just you know from all of our discussions with investors over the last couple of years, realized that there's a segment of investors. We're very focused on the physical commodity, uh, a group of investors that want to take a, a broad approach with uh, across the producers, developers, exploration companies, and, and hold a little bit of, of the physical uh, uranium itself, and that's that's the uh, Sprott Uranium Miners uh, Index. And then finally, there's a group of investors that, let's call these guys the, uh, the Super Bowls, who want kind of maximum operating leverage, ma maximum kind of optionality, to a higher uranium price and expiration upside. Um, so what we've basically done is worked with NASDAQ to create an index that focuses exclusively on the development companies, the kind of smaller producers, um, and the and the expiration companies. So if you want to basically focus on the, the segments of the, of the industry that um, have in a bull market historically, 
the, the most operating leverage, but albeit the most volatility and lower levels of liquidity. We wanted to basically provide a range of options across the uranium spectrum. John, that's a good overview of your uranium products, but you also developed three other products that benefit from the energy transition. Why don't we start with the Sprott Energy Transition ETF? What exactly is it and how can it help investors? Yeah, so we, uh, again, we worked with NASDAQ to co-develop an index that we, we thought was a very good representation of the types of minerals that we think are gonna be in critical demand to enable energy transition. So what is what does that all that mean? So we think that companies involved in lithium production, uh, copper production, uranium production, nickel, cobalt, copper, uh, these are all critical minerals for either the generation of electricity in cleaner forms. So those could be everything from obviously nuclear power plants, solar uh, uh, farms and, and wind farms. Um, and what do you need for those? Well, you obviously need things like uranium, you need silver for solar panels, et cetera. Then you, we have to think about, okay, you generate this power, how do you move it around? Well, copper is obviously the key transmission element. So copper uh, is, is critical for transmission, but it's also critical for things like EVs, which use much more copper in them than traditional ICE. And then when you think about the last stage of the cycle, which is storing energy, and, and that basically, comes down to batteries. So if you think about batteries for EVs, what do those require? Well, they obviously require lithium, uh, nickel, manganese, cobalt, uh, graphite. Uh, so we're focused on the upstream companies that we believe uh, are best positioned to deliver these critical minerals. So we're focused on upstream companies only, not midstream and downstream. Um, and so it's a pure play. These provide pure play exposure to upstream companies related to energy transition materials. John, spot lithium has exploded in price in the last few years. It was up over 400% in 2021. It was up over 150% in 2022, and that's all being driven by the surge in EV demand. And you developed another product for investors to capitalize on the growth in EVs and also the lithium price, and that is the Lithium Miners ETF. Why don't you tell us about this product? Yeah, I mean, lithium is, a, is obviously, a, a, I think, a, a, an element a lot of people are, are aware of. Lithium-ion batteries are obviously the key technology for many of the things that we use in our day-to-day -day lives. But where the big use of, uh, or the big increase in, in usage related to lithium is going to come from over the next 20-odd years is going to be, obviously, EVs. So whether you have lithium phosphate iron batteries, uh, which are the dominant uh, form in China, uh, or nickel-based uh, cathodes, which are uh, preferred in, in Western markets. Lithium is the common element across both of those key battery technologies. Uh, we saw the price of lithium over the last two years essentially go parabolic on us. Uh, it was the best performing commodity over the last two years. We have since seen the price moderate a little bit, and so what was driving that, what was driving those price gains? Well, it was basically shortage. In 2022, we saw record high EV sales around the world. And we believe EV sales are essentially hitting a tipping point right now. Uh, what I mean by that is that when you look at the adoption historically of different technologies, when you hit around 10% adoption, 
that represents a tipping point where essentially the growth accelerates from that point. Greater adoption and acceptance, economies of scale, costs come down, and it basically encourages more and more adoption. We think EVs are at that point. Obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act um, is going to be a huge catalyst in the United States in terms of providing EV subsidies for made in America uh, EVs. That's that's important. It's not, you know, you can buy an EV with a battery made in China. No, the battery needs to be made in the United States. So this is starting to shift big uh, investments back to the United States in this supply chain, which we think is really important to take note of. Um, eventually, more lithium will be produced. There's no doubt about it. There is a supply response coming. There is obviously a very high incentive price but it's gonna take time. And this is, this is the challenge with commodities in terms of developing them. You know, if you wanted to build a new gigafactory, it may, might take you two or three years. If you wanna build a new lithium mine, it might take you eight to 15 years. So you've got this timing mismatch. People wanna build more cars, but you know, bringing on these new developments takes a lot of time. As I mentioned, permitting and whatnot is a big issue. So, what we see going on right now is obviously kind of a lithium race happening. Uh, places like Nevada, I think, are going to be big winners here. U.S. government is starting to back companies there that because there's because there are lithium deposits that the, the U.S. can basically produce on local soil. Uh, clearly, the U.S. government does not want to be beholden to China for for all of its battery manufacturing, and uh, this is going to obviously spur a lot of investment. It could distort the market a bit when governments start to intervene in free markets. This is possible. But I think this is now kind of a, a key uh, policy goal. Um, and, I would, and I would say to some degree uh, to say, you know, kind of national security and energy transition, uh, energy security related goals that are driving these policies. And, you know, I think, I think it's important that, um, that we basically reshore a lot of these critical uh, industries that we've unfortunately over the years outsourced places uh, that we cannot be as as uh, we cannot rely on the same degree going forward. Now you raised some very interesting points, and one of the things that really stands out to me in this sector is how aggressive the OEMs have been in trying to secure lithium supply. Tesla has signed numerous offtake agreements with uh, various producers. Just recently, General Motors made a $650 million investment into Lithium Americas. And I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts. Do you ever think we'll see utilities doing this with uranium producers? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great question. But I, uh, I, find, I find the equity investments that the OEMs are making into some of these mining companies fascinating. Um, you just wouldn't have imagined this would have happened five years ago. I mean, they, they, they obviously weren't concerned about security of supply. They weren't concerned uh, uh, about procuring materials from, from, from around the world. But obviously, the landscape has changed. Not only that, but obviously, uh, when, when pieces of legislation like the IRA are enacted and those incentives only apply for local production, you need to think very differently. So as a car company, if you want to be able to um, uh, receive those EV subsidies, you need to find local production, local sources. So we think that these, uh, these mines in, in, let's say, Nevada or whatever in the United States um, are, are obviously going to be um, very important to, to reshore some of these services. 
you know, car companies obviously are not in the business of making equity investments in mining companies. I'm sure they, it's the last thing they want to do, but I think they're sufficiently concerned about this transition. And it is pretty meaningful when you, when you look at the goals that some of them have uh, over the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's a massive retooling of all of their production. And it's going to require critical minerals to do that. And they want to make sure that they have security of supply. And if it, if, it, if it means making an equity investment to get the front of the line to secure that production, they're going to do it. Um, I think it's a very telling sign to investors around how important raw materials are uh, in, in order to enable these transitions to happen. And there's one other ETF I want to mention before we wrap it up, but Sprott developed a junior copper miners ETF. And I find this interesting because BHP recently reported their quarterly numbers. It also said in its commentary that it wants to focus on future facing commodities, which includes copper and nickel and less on coal. Maybe you can tell us about this new copper miners ETF. Yeah, sure. So we, we think copper um, has a very bullish outlook. You know, it doesn't, it's not going to have the, the kind of wow factor um, and the big moves like you've seen in, in, let's say, lithium or cobalt. But it's a critical, you know, it's kind of the backbone um, of all things related to electrification. Um, the reality is, is it's um, the, big, the big copper mines around the world are, are, are getting old and, and grades have consistently been coming down at some of the largest mines in the world. And we do think that more investment has to happen. So if investors are looking for earlier stage companies and development companies, uh, we looked around the world and we could not find a junior copper mining index anywhere. So we developed one and we thought, okay, yes, there are some copper uh, ETFs out there, but they really focus on a very large contingent of companies, some pure play, some not. And what we wanted to do was provide uh, an opportunity to invest down market cap, um, in the sector, which we think is going to be receiving much more investment uh, over the coming year. So it's, it's a unique vehicle. As I said, we think it's one of a kind, doesn't exist anywhere in the world. And again, we're trying to find solutions to bring to market that are unique, they're innovative, and, and it really leverage the experience that Sprott has in the metals and mining space over multiple decades to put that intelligence into the way these indexes are created. And, and as I said, we formed a partnership with NASDAQ and their indexing group. They used a lot of our knowledge to construct these indexes, um, and we think they're very well thought through. And John, as we wrap up, where can investors go to find out more about these new ETFs? Yeah, so the best place to start your journey um, and do your homework, do your education, there's lots of information there, is sprottetfs.com. That's where you can find uh, information about the ETFs. And then investors looking for information on the Uranium Trust, the best place to start is sprott.com forward slash uranium. Lots of educational material. Most of my job is focused on educating people about these different markets. Um, they're not well understood. They're very early stage in some cases. And, and unfortunately, they're still opaque in, in, some, in some way. So we really try to, to share as much information with investors uh, as we can and give them a range of, in, of investment options so they can pick and choose, you know, what's best for their, for their respective portfolios. 
Well, John, I want to thank you for making time with us today. That was a great overview and a great update on uranium and a great overview of your new products. Congratulations on that. Once again, thank you. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for continuing all this great educational work. I think there's a lot of interest in the marketplace and information and education are, are really critical right now. Thank you.